Hello, I'm Fry. And I'm Brie from Pontifax, a papal history podcast ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. In each episode, we explore the life of a single pope and contextualize their papacy in world history. And then we rate them based on the success of their papacy, how scandalous they were, their impact on the secular world, what their face looked like, and more. They may even pick up a new patron sainthood on the way. In the end, our most impactful papal bull-worthy popes will battle it out for the keys to the pearly gates and to be the popiest pope who ever poped. You can find Pontifax at pontifax.podbean.com or wherever you find your podcasts. And on the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to another episode of Tudoriferous, the biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Charles VIII, King of France. I've spent, I seem to have spent months on this man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it is, I suppose, because I had to stop and do Moctezuma for the Patreon one. And then I picked it up again. And you did the Italian Wars. Yeah. So that would have been a lot of him. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to hear a lot about the Italian Wars. Come with me, if you will, to France. I know. I only just remembered to write that bit right at the end. King Charles is with his advisers. You must invade Italy, my liege, says the man on his right. You deserve the throne of Naples. It's yours by right. Why should the House of Aragon have what is obviously yours? The man on his left says um, something about money, something about lines of communication. The man on his right says, the people of Naples are calling to you. They're living under a tyranny. They need a knight of your calibre to release them from their suffering. The man on his left says something about paying the troops, taxes, the unpopularity it will cause with his subjects. The man on the right says, when you've got Naples, my liege, what is to stop you from taking on the Turks? Think of the glory you would gain if you were to put down the infidel. No one else has attempted this. Your name would live forever. The man on his right starts to say something about supply lines, the risks of being so far from home, getting bogged down in Italian politics. But he realises he's talking to an empty chair. Charles is gone. He's gone to Italy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's off. Gone. Descriptions of Charles. Quote, Favoured neither by nature nor circumstance, frail of constitution and feeble in mind, unquote. Yeah. His father was afraid to educate him. He thought he was mm. too soft. H.A.L. Fisher describes Charles as, quote, a young and licentious hunchback of doubtful sanity, unquote. Oh, dear. And I read that quite a while ago, and I thought, oh, I hope I get Charles. He sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of the Anne of Brittany from Patreon mm. episode. Quote, Charles was short of stature, with a big head set awkwardly on a small and flabby neck. A well-covered breast and back and a fleshy paunch dwindled away abruptly into long spindly legs. 
He sounds like a frog. <laughs> the eyes were, well, they does. Yes, the eyes were large and protuberant. <laughs> yeah, a, great, like a, frog. <laughs> a great hooked nose surmounted coarse lips. That would be an odd frog. And a chin covered only in part by a thin reddish beard, unquote. Oh, dear. Mm. The artist, Mantegna, and I'm not sure if he was being called upon to paint Charles or if he'd just seen him in passing, said it gave him nightmares to recall the small hunchback with his bulging eyes, large beak nose and scraggy hair. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Oh, poor Anne of Brittany. <laughs> yeah, well, poor Charles in many ways. It all sounds quite mean-spirited. But when right. you consider that at that time people thought that the inner person was reflected in the outer shell. Yeah. Because we hear a lot about him being mentally weak, as they put it. And I'm not sure whether they're making assumptions based on his Physical outer appearance. appearance. We still yeah. do that. Evil people in cartoons are still ugly. Hmm. Yeah. Ludovico Sforza said of him, quote, The king is young and of small capacity and indifferent judgment, unquote. But by the time he said that, he actually had an axe to grind, so. Mm. But in a way, we, we he must have had some struggles since he let his sister, his older sister, be his. This is this is farther into his episode. Let's let's listen to his episode. <laughs> I think. Yeah, we'll come to his sister. Others said that when he took over making decisions from his sister, he was pretty competent at it. Hmm. And he really must have been, as we see, as we see if you go through his, spoiler alert, short life, he surely must have known a goose from a capon to achieve all that he did. Ooh. He was said to be very nice, inasmuch as these rulers are ever very nice. Perhaps on a one-to-one -one level, perhaps if you were a city, he wasn't very no. nice. Yeah. <laughs> he was known as Charles the Affable. Really? Yeah. Hmm. He was much more forgiving than his sister, and certainly more forgiving than his dad. And Everybody. his palace was full of small dogs and parrots, which Aww. I thought sounded nice. Yeah. I mean, you've got to warm to someone who has small dogs and parrots. It sounds lovely, except they didn't teach them not to go to the bathroom on the floor. No. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to watch where you're walking, that's all. Ugh, the smell. As you said, he got very little education because he was a sickly boy and he was kept closeted at Amboise. He didn't do the things that princes would normally do to prepare them for the throne. No, and he was not allowed to learn how to battle, really. He was too frail. But he longed to do it. <laughs> they gave him a feather to practice with. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get a sword, but you can do it with this feather. Well, part of the problem was he was extremely short-sighted. Oh, yeah, okay. obviously no, gla no glasses, you see short. Yeah. How did they not have glasses? Because Queen Mary, the next generation, has glasses. When were glasses invented? I don't know. I think you see Thomas More in glasses, don't yeah. you? Perhaps that's true. Between 1268 and 1300. Blimey. Yeah, because Queen Mary, Elizabeth's sister, she wore glasses. Everybody was talking about how when she was in public, if she tried to read something, she had to put it almost right up against her face. But in mm. private, she was willing to wear the glasses. Put up against your face? I've got to put to stretch oh, my right. arm out. <laughs> <laughs> I just need things gigantic. It doesn't matter. Interesting. But it's said that Louis XI deliberately kept the boy locked away. Yes. And deliberately pre prevented him from getting skills necessary to rule because he remembered his own rocky relationship with his father. 
Yes, and that is coming up in a future Patreon <laughs> episode. Yeah, it's still, it's still there. It's still pending. Tudoriferous Patreon. You know you want to. But now it's thought he might have just been an overanxious parent. Oh. As you might well have been if you had a sickly child at this Everybody time. Everybody died. And this is his only son. Yes. Because yeah. he, he wrote, he constantly wrote letters to Charles's attendants asking if he's eating okay, is he keeping warm, but not too warm. Oh. So, and he didn't want him bothered with Latin or history because he didn't think it was going to be good for his health. Perhaps yeah. we ought to put a, a public health warning at the beginning of each, each <laughs> episode. Saying, history is bad for your health. <laughs> I should put that on my Latin classes. Send that to the professor. Here you go. Apparently, I should not be reading. The boy was brought up on a diet of chivalric romances, which might explain a lot. Oh, yeah. He did like reading, though, and he appreciated art. You know, he wasn't... A, so he wasn't, he wasn't totally a, incompetent. He, he was literate, obviously. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That's a surprise, actually. I assume since he wasn't educated that he wouldn't be able to read. No, he could read. Or, or someone was reading to him, I'm not sure. Oh. But he liked literature. Stories, yeah. Especially, especially the chivalric ones. He brought a lot of art back with him from Italy. Of course he did. Hmm. <laughs> you might call it spoils, I suppose, <laughs> wouldn't you? Or stealing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Mine. And his rather idiosyncratic look, shall we say, didn't stop him being something of a ladies' man. Well, he did have power. Mm-hmm. Women like power, or oh, their oh. husbands and dads like power, and their daughters were and wives were a way to get through there. Yes, shoving them into. In fact, Ugh. we do hear of somebody pushing his daughter into the sort of line of sight of Charles and hoping that will yeah. do him some good. Yeah. So his imagination had been fed by romances and was not restrained by the knowledge of statecraft. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, no. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> when Louis XI died in 1483, his son Charles was only 13 years old and not in good health, as we've said. Though he was only 10 months from being legally old enough to rule, his 22-year-old sister, Anne de Beaujeu, became regent. That I want to know about. How? How did she become regent? Her story is pending. <laughs> yes, we've put her in the box. <laughs> yes. She was assisted by her 43-year-old husband, Pierre de Beaujeu of Bourbon. And how old was she? 22. Oh, you poor thing. Mm. That's an old man by that time. Yeah. Yep. But they did seem to act as a couple. Maybe he just loved his very young wife. That's very common, too. <laughs> Look at how beautiful she is. She's so young. <laughs> yeah, when we do the episode on Anne, we'll cover the Breton Wars, since Charles was part of it, but he was probably following orders from his sister. Mm -hmm. And the Breton Wars are fiendishly complicated. I I've, I've, I've still haven't quite got my head around them. I mean, we've done them... From several different directions. Yes. Well, uh, I didn't cover them very much with Anne's episode. Well, we will with Anne de Beaujeu because we'll see quite a lot of it. Rather than squeezing it into this one, we'll yeah. be already doing three episodes. And Yeah, and I didn't 
didn't want to do Anne of Brittany because she wasn't the one in charge for a lot of it. So I left it out. Yeah, she was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, Anne de Beaujeu was extremely competent. Maybe a little too competent. Charles, in a true teenage style, when he came to power, turned against everything she'd done and believed in. Oh, no. But the problem with Charles was he was known for changing his mind and being swayed by opinions of his favourites on all subjects, apart from the one exception. That's his Italian campaign. <laughs> but he was also kind to the, point, to the point of gallibility. If you got into his good oh. books, you could expect to be set up for life. Oh. And it was thanks to him that Anne de Beaujour pardoned most of the rebel lords, the French rebel lords that we'll hear about when we talk, talk about the Brittany Wars, apart from the Duke of Orange and Louis of Orleans, because, you know, they were ringleaders. And I think she said, no, enough's enough. And the Duke of Orange was his cousin. Mm. Ludovica Schwarzer said of him, quote, some would express an opinion and the king would adopt it and dispatch orders in that sense. Then somebody else would come and speak with him and the orders would be revoked. Oh. Charles is consumed by pride and ambition and respects nobody. Sometimes when we were sitting together, he would rise and go off to dinner, leaving me alone as though I had been a dog, unquote. I remember this is Ludovico Sforza we're talking about. It takes some gall to treat Ludovico like that. Yeah. Just to get up and walk away. But yeah, yeah. he was one of these people who listened to the last person that said... Yeah, someone would suggest something. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And then someone would say, oh, hang on, my niche. And they'd go, oh, that's a better idea. Let's do that. And it was just yes. all over the place. So this is where becoming the groom of the stool becomes probably the most important position <laughs> yes. in the world. Yes. Yes. Yes, you don't want to listen to them. Listen to me. But Machiavelli called France, quote, among the best ordered and governed kingdoms of Europe, unquote. Really? Can any of this be said to be down to Charles VIII? No, and I don't agree with that statement. Well, his father, Louis XI, dragged the country out of poverty brought on by the Hundred Years' War. Yes, true. And his sister we carried didn't... on the work. Okay. Charles really didn't have the time to make an impact, at least not in France. He made quite an impact in Italy. <laughs> Poor Italy. Poor Italy. And then his troops made quite an impact all over Europe, as we've heard. Yes. If anything, he drained the <laughs> French coffers of with his Italian campaign. So he could be seen as a step backwards yes. in French history. Francesco della Casa, an envoy from Florence, and a man whom we came across traipsing across France with Machiavelli in a Patreon episode, said of Charles, quote, he was reporting back to Florence, he said of him, quote, the king is quite incapable of dealing by himself with serious business. Indeed, I am ashamed to say how little he understands or interests himself in it. To secure you in his good books and to maintain a good position at court, I shall avail myself of every occasion that offers to keep on easy and familiar terms with him. But I must caution you not to run away with the idea that it will be beneficial for us to ingratiate ourselves with him. For every day he lets himself be drawn in a thousand different directions and is led by anyone who will gain his ear. Ordinary affairs of no great consequence are conducted in such a haphazard manner, productive of indescribable confusion. And were it not that matters of importance receive some consideration in the council, I should predict inevitable disaster to the government." Unquote. 
Wow, that's... That is quite damning. Damning. <laughs> yes. I'm just, I've been doing my notes and none of that was good. <laughs> no. Absolutely none of it. No. So far you haven't said anything that makes me like him. <laughs> no. I mean, even, even the being affable bit, it's obviously people were using it. So yeah. just ask him. Just ask him. He'll give you whatever you want. Which is nice. But it but, does. I wonder. He was locked away by his dad. Is he buying friends? Yeah, that's possible. Mm. I Doing just whatever he that, can to yeah. finally be liked. Mm. But mm. still, you're the king. You're the king. You're the king. And yeah, it's worth keeping these descriptions in mind as we go along because it's not the picture you get when we get to Italy. It's easy mm. to forget these descriptions of him. Oh, okay. Maybe Charles just wasn't interested in French politics. When he got to Italy, he sort of comes to life a bit. Charles was really impressed by his cousin Louis of Orléans, who embodied all those chivalric elements that Charles had been brought up on. It's a bit like Henry VIII and Philip the Fair. He's sort of... Oh, yeah. Yeah. The bromance. Teenage crush, Yes. Louis had planned to abduct him, not because he was fond of him, but on the basis of whoever right. has the king has the regency. Right. But, I remember that now. Yeah. And I did that episode. <laughs> <laughs> but the Beaujers took Charles from Paris to Montagie, where they could keep an eye on him, and so foiled Louis's plan. But Louis was then appointed president of the Royal Council and lieutenant general of the Ile de France. But he was disappointed not to get the regency. And as we've seen time and again, these people are never happy, are they? Ever. No matter what they get, they're not happy. No. Mm. Charles was very young when Henry Tudor fled from Brittany and found sanctuary in France. So the decision to take him in would have come from Anne de Beaujour, not from Charles. Right. I'm not even sure whether Charles would have been consulted, really, at that time. Really? I thought Louis the... Eleventh would have been there at some point. I thought Louis XI died. I don't know. I'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if that was the case, it can't have been long before he died, I don't think. Mm. Okay. When the rest of Henry's followers from Brittany joined him, Henry went on to Angers and sought an interview with Charles. So, presumably... Louis must be dead by then, because otherwise, why talk yeah. to Charles? <laughs> yeah, there'd be no point, and he would have still been isolated. Yeah, why talk to a small boy? Yeah. Henry was by then claiming to be the rightful king of England and was signing himself H. He told Charles that he needed to return to his kingdom to destroy the tyranny of Richard III. And Charles, or rather his sister, and the council gave him vague promises but it was too early to commit themselves. The last thing they wanted was to side with Henry, only to have him soundly beaten by Richard, and then France would find themselves in a very awkward position in their relations with England. Yes. The court moved on to Montagie and later to Paris, taking Henry with them. Henry was hanging about for a year before he found himself in a position to get on with this invasion. Gosh, that must have been frustrating. Yeah. We like our answers within the same minute. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not a year later. 
No, it's and nothing stays the same in a year in politics. While he was at Montagie, he was joined by John de Vere, James Blount, the captain of of Amcastle and by rights de Vere's jailer, Mm. and Sir John Fortescue, the gentleman porter of Calais. And when they got to Paris, he was also joined by others who were studying at the university there, like Richard Fox. Yes. So he's sort of getting his merry men around him. Yeah, I still like Richard Fox. (laughs) The French agreed to give Henry troops for his invasion, but these were quite a dodgy lot. They were mercenaries who'd been in the wars with Flanders. And the good people of Flanders must have been delighted with Henry since he deflected them away from ravaging the countryside of the Low Countries. Yes. So these are the type of people who accompanied Henry over to Milford Haven. The French still seemed very half-hearted in their support for him. They had been enthusiastic and had promised him lots of money, but it looked as if it'd be a good bet in their territorial grab of Brittany. But the, the Breton menace sort of ebbed and waned and their enthusiasm was wearing off a bit. So they just said, well, have these mercenaries and just go, <laughs> go now. Also, Henry's viability as a monarch was dependent on him marrying Elizabeth of York. Yes. Richard III had promised Elizabeth to one of his household knights in a way of sort of, what's the word? Um, Reward? No, I'm thinking of uh, stopping her being available for Uh, Henry. Yeah. Right. I wonder how he would have carried that out, because... At this time, the woman still had to approve consent to the marriage. All she had to do was say no, and the church technically wouldn't have moved forward with it. Mm. That's why you get stories of parents beating their daughter until they agree to the marriage. Maybe she was said yes, I don't know. But the news of this, quote, pinched Henry by the very stomach, unquote. As well it might, since it was jeopardising his chance of getting any help from the French. Yeah, it has nothing to do with him loving her. No. No, No, I mean, you can't expect it. You've never met. He had to get loans from financiers now. And apparently he was feeling really down about it. We we hear from chronicler and political theorist Philippe de Comines. Henry told him that he'd been imprisoned from the age of five. And apparently he just seemed really depressed. Comines seems to imply that Henry didn't really expect to succeed at this point. Oh, dear. Mm. And Comine didn't rate his chances very highly. He had no money. He had no real claim to the throne. So it's not surprising that the French were having second thoughts if Henry was sort of moping about going, oh, it's all going wrong. (laughs) But he set sail with a bunch of thugs, so kindly provided by the French, from (laughs) Honfleur on the 1st of August, 1485. So the French were probably on the beach going, bye, bye. Bye, bye, don't come back. Yes. Bye. Yes. You've got that. We'll see you at Christmas. No, you won't. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, we'll now leap forward a few years to the Brittany problem. Despite their help, Henry decided that he couldn't side with the French against the Bretons. And actually now, having seen how lacklustre they were in their help, you can understand it. Before we were yes. saying that it was sort of equally balanced. You know, he was helped by the French, he was helped by the Bretons. He was very reluctantly helped by the French. Yes. And not helped much. And if he continued his alliance with the Bretons, then he still had access to bringing his goods Mm. into France. 
Yes. When he decided to stop trading with the low countries. Yes. <laughs> I need options to get my merchants into the continent. Yeah, he certainly didn't want the French to have the whole of the north coast no. of France. No. No. As I said, we'll cover all this in Andabosia, and we've also got Duke Francis's episodes. Suffice it to say, the outcome of the Breton Wars was that Charles married Anna Brittany in 1491. Yay! And we covered that in Anne's Patreon episode. Yeah. And Louis XII. <laughs> and <Yay>! Maximilian. <laughs> they were all part of it. <laughs> Anne was already betrothed to Maximilian, and Charles was already betrothed to Maximilian's daughter, Margaret of Austria. So that's worth bearing in mind when we see later that Maximilian didn't like Charles very much. No. Anna Brittany's confessor convinced her that this betrothal thing was not a problem. He knew that Pope Innocent was anxious to see the French in Italy because he had invited Charles in to take the throne of Naples. I don't understand that. You had such a low opinion of him and you're like, hey, come take Naples. Um, I don't know if Pope, Pope Innocent had a low opinion of him. I'm assuming he would because everybody did. <laughs> Usually those opinions... Are, are sort of passed back and forth because it's it's a political opinion. It's a generally a bilateral thing, isn't it? Are you for or against Naples? I'm against Naples. Okay, this bloke says he's going to come uh, in and get rid of it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so Pope Innocent True. is anti-Naples. Hmm. So he would definitely grant a full dispensation for uh, the marriage between Charles and Anna Brittany. Yes. Which indeed he did on the 15th of December. Which was just as well, because Charles and Anne had already been married on the 6th. So, <laughs> 1492, Charles invited Perkin Warbeck to France. Yeah, I forgot about that. We're back with Perkin. He was quite late with this invitation, but it was very welcome to Perkin since his supporters in Ireland had failed to appear. Because <laughs> yeah, <but>, uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Once bitten by Lambert Simnel, twice shy, I think. <laughs> We've already done this. Yes. We're not doing it again. <laughs> it didn't make us very popular. <laughs> no, that hurt. <laughs> In June, as Perkin put it, quote, they came with many ships and a great company to call me forth, unquote. Henry was expecting something of this sort. He wrote to Ludovico Sforza, quote, the French are so on the watch to increase their power by any villainy and what mischief the French are machinating against us or what snares they are laying, we will pass over on in silence, unquote. I will not speak to this because it is not true, but I'm going to tell you that I'm not yes. going to speak to this. <laughs> yes, we will leave that entirely in silence. That bit yes. about the, the French. You got that, didn't you? Yeah. The bit about the French. The other one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, what the, Henry wasn't bothered. No, I'm not bothered. <laughs> One reason that Charles decided to support Perkin, apart from just generally making things difficult for Henry, was that he thought it would make Henry think twice about England's defence of Brittany. Nope. Everyone used Perkins for their own agenda, and this one was Charles's. Because the Yorkists who waylaid Perkin in York were backed by Charles. But he didn't actually call him over for a while, so I think he'd back, he, he, he had it... Pending. Yes, he had it pending yeah. as an idea and then thought, I'll just wait and see what happens. And, that, oh, no, Henry is going to side with the Bretons. 
Perkin, come over here a yeah, minute. I have a proposition. Perkin stayed in France for five months, although infuriatingly not much is known of what he got up to there. Just mooching about, I think. Yes. He had a pension and he had a minder, the wonderfully named Alexander Moneypenny. <laughs> a minder? <laughs> like a guard? Um, a companion? Charles called Perkin cousin and said that he was, quote, true heir to the realm of England, unquote. And maybe Charles believed it. He'd been brought up on chivalric literature, so saving the Duke of York would be very chivalrous. Very. Mm. But that would lean again towards him being dumb. He's not the only one to believe it. True. Why do we don't know who did believe it? No, I don't think anybody did. <laughs> I'm sure Margaret convinced herself, Mar um, Auntie Margaret. Yeah. Perkin lived like a prince. He was attended by a guard of honour and he had someone to taste his wine before he drank it. So he must have been the Duke of York if he thought someone was trying to poison him. But what worried Perkin was that Charles wouldn't help him against Henry. Charles was happy to have him there as a potential threat. He didn't need him as an actual threat. Right. Yeah, it's like Damocles' sword. I've got this. That's precisely what I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, and then in sorry. November, following Henry's invasion of France, the two countries made peace. Perkin must have thought, what? They've done what? what? The codicil to the treaty contained a promise that they would not aid each other's rebels. So what was Perkin to do now? Edward Hall said that Perkin sneaked away from Paris at night since he was afraid that Charles would give him up to Henry. Hmm. It's more likely that Charles had a quiet word with him, I think. It's time for you to go. You yes. are no longer useful. Yes. Please leave. I think Charles declined on a point of honour to actually hand him over to Henry. But hmm. he did. Yeah, chivalry. We're back to chivalry. Yeah. No. Okay, so... Is this really Charles making these decisions or is it the last person speaking to mm -hmm. him? Who knows? Because this seems very clever. Charles ultimately makes the decisions. See, that's why yeah. it's so difficult. You read about it all. It's Charles did that. Charles did this. Because did he? he is the one. He's king. So this yes. is. But yes, that's, we just hmm. don't know. We can assume with the Italian stuff that it is him because nobody else wants him to do it. He's yes. very much on his own, which just makes make you feel he was he could dig his heels in. Yeah. Mm. So he wasn't one hundred percent able to be swayed. No, this was the one Ooh. occasion, the one thing he just said, Nope, I'm doing this. I see what you mean about this being difficult to pull that image all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, that strange-looking man that's meant to be no. completely incompetent. We just... It's... Yeah, because this is very political. This is very politically savvy. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. So how much of what people claim about him is based on his appearance? Yeah. I don't know. Um, ambassadors are usually pretty canny, aren't they? I mean, they can spot that they're there to pick up on these things. And if that um, the ambassador, yeah. Della Casa, went back to Florence and said, it's hardly worth an effort of trying to ingratiate ourselves with him because, you know, we might say something, he says yes, and then 
the, the ambassador from Milan comes along and right. What's the point? Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, back to Henry, since we'll see little little enough of him later on, so we might as well grab what we can of him now. This, inv <laughs> <laughs> this invasion of Henry's, how serious was it? We're in November 1492 now. Did he really believe he could take on the mightiest mili military power in Europe? Probably. Well, he'd previously made an attempt when he mustered his troops in Portsmouth, with the intention of attacking Brest in Brittany. The French government heard about this and threatened to attack England, so Henry then had to concentrate on strengthening his own defences on the south coast. And that was why Henry's attack, when it finally did come, was so late in the fighting season. Unless we oh. wanted to take a less charitable view and say that it didn't matter to Henry that it was late in the fighting season, since he, he had no money. intention of fighting. Yeah, he just wanted that pension. Hmm. How did France have the money for the pension? They found the money for the Italian campaign. So there's, yeah, always, that's why there's I'm money somewhere, but we haven't had the Italian campaign yet. So, hmm. But they yeah. paid it through the Italian campaign. Yeah, once he got to Italy. Anyway, well, <laughs> yeah, I think jumping ahead is going to confuse us no end. Sorry. 8th of October, the English left Calais to lay siege to Bologna. But nine days later, Henry received an offer of terms from the French. Benjamin. <laughs> 3rd of November, the treaty was concluded at Etaples. The terms were that the two countries could trade on equal terms. Henry would be reimbursed for the Brittany campaign, which seems extraordinary because he was fighting against the French. Charles would make up the arrears of the pension due under the Treaty of Picony that his father had made with Edward IV. So a total of 745,000 gold crowns were to be paid at an annual rate of 50,000. This would still have left Henry out of pocket for the campaign he'd just waged against Charles, but he had many years of payments to look forward to. He's got 50, yeah, but 15. you'd have to trust... You'd have to trust you were getting that You'd have money to for trust not years. only Charles, but possibly the next one if something yes. happens to Charles. Yes. Hmm. And Charles had agreed to abandon Perkin Warbeck, which led to Perkin having to flee to Flanders. In return, Charles got peace, which enabled him to head off to Italy, confident that England wouldn't attack him the moment his back was turned, and Henry accepted him as the ruler of Brittany. But then... Henry had no reason not to do so because Charles had married Anne of Brittany. He was the ruler yes. of Brittany. Yes, and because of that um, agreement that they've now got and the pension, he now can trade. He doesn't have that barricade anymore. Mm. So there is no reason for him to fight France. No. Henry does seem to have done a lot better than Charles out of this. Yeah. So how was the Treaty of Etaples viewed in each country? Henry made sure he paid off his troops. He was obviously expecting trouble from soldiers who had thought they were going to France to fight. And get loot. Mm. Well, Henry might be able to explain away the lack of fighting as politically expedient, but those soldiers would be going home to people who'd asked them what they did in the French war. And they were going to have to say, well, we hung around for a bit and then we came home. Right. And the taxpayers might be a tad miffed too, because they'd coughed up the money for the war. Not so that Henry could just fill that coffer under his bed. That I mean, they want to show the French is a thing or two, and they haven't done that at all, so... Not at all. Hmm. Henry was accused of, quote, one who cared not to plume his nobility and people, 
to feather himself, unquote. So I'm not going to give you anything because it's all coming to me. Yeah, although actually some of the nobility got a feather or two anyway, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Well, you had to. They were livid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and many people thought Henry had had no intention of fighting. Henry was said not only to have cheated his own people, but his allies too, since he hadn't consulted Ferdinand or Maximilian about this treaty with Charles. But then Ferdinand and Maximilian were up to the same thing. They all were. Yeah. I can't help but think that Henry and Charles had this all planned in advance. Oh, really? If Henry had no intention of fighting, he must have known that it wouldn't be necessary to fight anyway. And he could have only have known that if he'd cleared it with Charles first. If he hadn't, then what was he doing invading France in November? Good point. I mean, I'm surprised that no documentation of that hasn't come to light yet, which makes me think perhaps perhaps it's just a, <laughs> a supposition too far. But it does seem to make more sense, and it fits in with Henry's cleverness. that I don't want to fight because it's just cost money. But... To save face, I need to try to do this. Mm. So if we agree to this prior, yeah. I'll come. We'll do a day's worth of attacking. Mm -hmm. Then you pay me off. Yep. And I leave. Yep. And take away support from Maximilian and Ferdinand. Yes, and I promise not to attack France while you're in Italy. So how would you do that without having something written that somebody That's found? That's precisely That would be a very good ambassador. Yes. That would be, here are my official ambassadors. <laughs> and here is Richard Fox. Or Roger Machado. He, he was given a few secret messages, wasn't he, to yeah, pass so on? Yeah, so was Gray. Mm. He had lots of options that were behind the scenes, shall we say? But we know about them. So they weren't that behind the scenes. So I haven't heard anything about this. Yeah, but in some cases, we know that they were sent, but we don't know what was discussed. We just know that they mm. went there because we have records of the travel and the fact that they were at the court, but we don't have any records of what they were supposed to be talking about. Yeah, something like this, you would make damn sure that it didn't get out. I mean, that's, yeah. imagine if it got back to England. Maximilian and Ferdinand. Yes, I mean, they wouldn't keep quiet about it, would they? Yeah, joint forces. Let's get England. Mm. Yeah. Well. Oh, 007. <laughs> well, no, 007 is more about going and kill things. Just hit people. Do I can't watch James Bond. I just keep thinking, you're a grown man. Stop hitting him. <laughs> the older ones I can watch, but the newer ones have gone darker. That's nasty. Yeah. Mm. So, no, not the newer ones. But... I guess there is no such thing as a movie on a secret messenger who goes around preventing battles and war. Yes. Like, nobody would watch it. <laughs> I was thinking of a character that this could be. There isn't one. No, no. Yeah, you don't get Roger Machado beating someone up, as far as we no. know. Well, anyway, something to ponder. Mm -hmm. By August 1494, Charles was warning Henry that Maximilian was determined to help Perkin quote, with people, favour, and all he possibly can, unquote. And Charles was offering to help his former enemy. 
So Henry sent mm. Talk of the Devil, Roger Machado, to tell him it wasn't necessary. Perkin wasn't a threat. The whole thing was a ruse, quote, just like the other one the Duchess of Burgundy concocted when she sent Martin Schwartz to England, unquote. Martin Schwartz and his <laughs> men. <laughs> soddledum, soddledum. <laughs> he thanked Charles, but, quote, the business of the garçon is of so little worth and value that the king does not intend to put the subjects of his brother and cousin to any pain or labour on that account or to give him that trouble, unquote. And Machado also passed on Henry's offer of mediation between Charles and Ferdinand over Naples, which Charles obviously is not the slightest bit interested in because he doesn't want to mediate. He wants to go into Italy and do the yes. whole chivalric bit. And he also thanked Charles for his declaration that he wouldn't help the Scots if James invaded England. Which is huge, actually. It is. And I can only assume that he didn't want to get embroiled in a war with England over James. Because he wants to be in Italy. Because he wants to go to Italy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, we've pretty much the whole of the political setup of Europe has changed so that this young man can go to Italy. Can go to Italy. Mm. In 1496, so after the Italian campaign, Charles was still helping Henry with the Perkin question. It really did drag on. No wonder it took three episodes to do. By this time, Henry had discovered, or was promulgating, the story that Perkin came from Tanai. Charles provided Henry with spies to send to Scotland, which is where Perkin was by then, and he sent him evidence that the so-called Duke of York, so he's the so-called Duke of York now, was the son of a barber, and offered to send over his parents. Tottenham is a French city, so Henry would have needed Charles to extra extradite Mr. and Mrs. Warbeck, since Henry wouldn't have had the jurisdiction just to go and get them. But Henry wasn't happy with the Tournai story and was looking for something else, and I'm not sure why. He didn't trust Charles. I mean, of course he didn't. When Charles needed Henry as a friend, Perkin was the barber's son, but when he wanted to put pressure on Henry, he'd throw in that modicum of doubt that he was... The Duke of York. See, this sounds clever. Mm. It doesn't sound like somebody who doesn't understand the game. No. Sounds like he understands the game better than I do. He might have learned a thing or two in Italy, I suppose. This is after he's been to Italy. I think that was quite a growing up time. In his confession, Perkin claimed that Charles had known all along that he wasn't the Duke of York. But that isn't really the proof that it seems, since we don't know who wrote Perkin's confession. If it was Perkin, then we can see that Charles was a tricky customer. And as you said, using Perkin as a sword of Damocles over Henry's head. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting to think alike. <laughs> <laughs> but if it was Henry who wrote the confession, then it was a way of getting back at Charles by accusing him of something that Henry couldn't oh. possibly have known. Yeah, he protected this man, even though he didn't believe for one second that he was the Duke of York. Right. Right, we get on to the big one now. This one will cover the whole of the rest of this episode and the next two, because we're on to the Italian campaign of 1494. Ooh. Charles is 24. This is, this is the main attraction of Charles VIII's reign. And I'm going to go into a lot of detail about it because it makes so much clear that it had been completely confusing me before. And possibly confusing the listening several as well. It may not seem to have much to do with England, but Charles's entry into Italy affected all the main states of Europe for over half a century. It really was a huge deal. 
So a quick look at Italy before Charles turned up. Italy was far wealthier than anywhere else. I mean, I don't know about China or something, but anywhere else in Europe. <laughs> so, okay. There was economic progress in agriculture, commerce and industry. They grew enough food to have a surplus to sell. It was self-sufficient in minerals, metals, flax and hemp, as well as luxury goods, mirrors, glass, silk, brocades. There was barely a European government that was not in debt to the Medici Bank. Right. You had all the bankers in Italy. Pretty much, yeah. Apart from Fuga. Yeah. Art, literature, science, learning, architecture, all flourishing. It could have been paradise. But it was suffering from what the historian John Bridge called political degeneracy. It was just too bitty, for one thing. Some city-states were being run by condottieris who got lucky, like the Swartzers in Milan. Yeah. Each city battled with other cities. Treachery and violence were the norm because no one expected anything else. Each city thought of self-aggrandizement rather than presenting a united front against a common enemy. And in fact, several cities, like Milan, used that common enemy in a game of one-upmanship. By the time they needed to band together, it was too late. They didn't trust each other. Well, how could you when you were constantly fighting each other? More precisely. As Machiavelli said in The Prince, keep your word only as long as it is expedient to do so. And that's what they were all doing. <laughs> Princes ruled their states as if they owned them, as if they were sort of playthings. And the stronger city-states overran the weaker, which is why the prince got written, really, because there were quite a few rulers in need of advice about, now you've got your weaker state, how to rule it. So, Yeah, I'm just, I'm looking at the Italian map while you're talking. Mm. It is, it, it is broken up into so many pieces. Yes. So many pieces. And if a ruler found his position to be a little shaky he called in a stronger power to help him. And we see this very strongly with Ludovico Sforza. He was prepared to call in a foreign power to shore up the shaky structure of his dodgy claim to Milan. And then he called in another foreign power to sort out his problems with the French. Philippe de Comines wrote, quote, I must tell how it came about that King Charles, who is now on the throne, undertook his voyage to Italy. There was much dispute as to the likelihood of his going, for the enterprise seemed to be the height of folly to all wise and experienced men, and no one approved of it save himself and a certain person called Etienne de Ver, a low-born Languedocian, without knowledge or experience, unquote. He said there were two others, but one backed down pretty quickly, and the other was only doing it for what he hoped he could get out of the king. The ringleader was Etienne de Ver, who had no political or military experience, but must have had the gift of the gab. Because usually, you know, he might say, you need to go to Italy. And then someone else would come along and say, oh, don't go to Italy. And Charles would be backwards and forwards. But oh, he didn't. Goodness. He didn't. He stuck, no, he just went straight. He stuck with this man. What is what? What, what did he say to Charles? Well, you can know what he know. said to him because it's all to do with chivalry. And now that I'm looking at Italy, I'm looking at your comment during the come with me of supply lines because he has to go through everything because naples is at the bottom mm. of italy everything else is in between so he's got to make sure that he leaves Holy a trail cow. of places that he's taken or and defended or yeah and, and you've got to leave people when you defend them or that he remains friendly 
on with friendly everything terms in with everybody in between. Yeah. Goodness. Mm. It is really an utterly ridiculous campaign to have. It really is. No wonder people were saying, please don't do this. Please don't. 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 Stay out. Wow. Uh, So the two other people were General Brissonnet, who coincidentally received the Cardinal's hat for his part in the venture, and the Seneschal de Brocaire, who had been Charles's valet de chambre when the king was a boy. I don't know what was in it for him. Maybe he just loved him. (laughs) I don't know. I was fond of him because he'd known him as a boy. Virtually everyone else who didn't have a vested interest were begging him not to do it. And Charles was not just doing this for his own glory. It had been stressed on him by those whispering in his ear that he would be releasing an oppressed people, which they were. King Ferrante was a usurper and a tyrant. Yes, true. And also Naples would be a good springboard from which to attack the infidel. But it's at the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's not interested in that. All these reasons, glory, chivalry and Christian duty, fed naturally into Charles's reading of romances. So Charles would be able to get what he wanted and be seen as a saviour in the process. And I think that's all he can see. But you have to get there. You have to make a whole bunch of people miserable. They don't see you as a (laughs) saviour. I think in the books, the chivalric romances, the knights all succeed. They do. They all win. They all become beloved. Yeah. Everybody wants you there. Mm-hmm. But that's... Wow. So he was delusional. Ultimately. Well, read on. <laughs> <laughs> the Beaujeurs were against it, since they saw it as a disaster waiting to happen. Louis of Orléans was against it, because it meant cozying up to Ludovico Sforza. And Louis right. saw Milan as his and the Sforzas as interlopers. Philip de Comines was bitterly against it, partly because he was also in the pay of Piero de' Medici of Florence, but also because he thought Charles would get completely enmeshed in Italian politics and would never escape. Easy, easy to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel we've got completely enmeshed in Italian politics. Oh, goodness, yes. Huh. At the beginning, even Charles was wavering. And it was these three men, spurred on by bribes from Milan, dropping honeyed words into the king's ear. We're the latest people to talk to you. And we're telling you what you want to hear. They told him that the House of Anjou had a God-given right to the throne of Naples. He'd be just taking back what was rightfully his. And in fact, the people of Naples were crying out for him to come and oust the Aragonese interlopers. He'd be seen as a hero. And this, as we've said, may well be true, because Ferrante was a despotic ruler. Both his subjects and his neighbours would have been delighted to see the back of him. And from Naples, Charles would have been able to use it as a springboard to attack the Turks. Had Charles been older and or wiser, he may have looked at the inexperience of these three men and then looked at the track record and relevant knowledge of those arguing against it And he might be thinking to himself, I'll be an idiot to take this on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) But he was raised on chivalric romances and, yeah, the hero always wins. So that's what he was going to do. He was going to win. There was no money for the campaign, so Charles had to borrow heavily. 
including borrowing a loan from the Saudi Bank of Genoa, not one I've come across before, at a rate of 14% interest, which must surely be more than it's allowable, because there was definitely a cap on interest rates. Mm-hmm. Marshal Desquerd told Charles that he would need two million écus. We're getting a lot of different coinages here, and I'm not sure about... They all sound like a lot anyway. <laughs> two million of anything is a lot of something. Yeah. He asked the great nobles for 50,000 ducats. Lyon promised 10,000. Paris gave nothing. Uh, 3,000 livres from Amiens was only half of what the king had requested. He sold and mortgaged parts of his royal domain to raise 120,000 livres. He sold part of his domain? Yep. And he delayed paying royal officials and pensioners. Wow. He increased the bataille, or tax, to 575,000 livres, but it wasn't really enough. There were not even any tents by the time they were entering Lombardy. And it was already winter, so the soldiers were having to sleep out in the open. Why did Charles think he had a right to Naples? Right, we're going back in time here. The Kingdom of Naples was a fief of the church. Pope Clement IV gave it to Charles of Anjou in 1265. This was to be passed down to the nearest blood relative, so it was passed down without incident until 1382 when Joanna I died. From then it should have gone to her nephew Charles of Durazzo as her nearest blood relative. But Joanna didn't like him. So she adopted Louis of Anjou, whom she designated as her successor. And in fact, she had no right to do this. She couldn't modify the succession. This may have been sorted out quite quickly, except that at this, this was the time of the Great Schism. Two popes. And one pope chose Charles of Durazzo and one chose Louis of Anjou. This was sorted out militarily. And then it continued to go down Charles's line until it hit another Joanna. Joanna II had no heirs, but she hated Frenchmen. And so she adopted Alfonso of Aragon as her heir. So now we have the two parties, the Anjou and the Aragonese. But Alfonso proved to be such a pain in the backside that even Joanna regretted adopting him. And she had the adoption annulled by the Pope and accepted the Anjou line, Louis III. But that was limited to Louis, his brothers and his issue. Following Joanna's death, there was a long struggle and the Aragonese were victorious, despite the fact that René of Anjou, Louis's brother, was the titular king. So we have one side, the Aragonese, who actually had Naples, and the other, the Angevin, who had the titular right to the throne. And the current representative of the Angevin was Charles VIII. That's oh a goodness. massively, massively slimmed down version of what I had to read. Wow. So we've got the two sides all set up. Now that's the legal basis that Charles was banking on. And in fact, he was mistaken. The whole thing hinged on the Papal Bull of 1265. This gave Naples to Charles of Anjou and his heirs to the exclusion of the rest of the House of Anjou. Since then, the gene pool had become muddied. Charles VIII was not a direct heir of Charles of Anjou, and so in fact he had no claim at all to the Neapolitan throne. But he decided to anyway. Yeah. Also, of the two popes during the Great Schism, the one that sided with the Angevin was Clement, the anti-pope. Right. I don't think Charles was trying it on. I'm sure he generally believed he had a right. 
And even if he were aware that it wasn't watertight, was the Aragonese claim any better? Not really. It's, if anything, it's even more tenuous. Yeah. So it seems that the two that are battling for it, neither really deserve it. Should have it. But I don't know who would. I don't know who's left. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Even in 1492, two years before Charles set off for Italy, Henry VII considered Charles's actions to be dangerous enough for him to write a letter to Ludovicus Sforza, telling him to think very carefully before inviting the French into Italy. Quote, We are not of the opinion that the intense ambition of the French and their lust for extending their sway and conquering the dominions of others is manifest to you. We should endeavour to demonstrate it at full length. But we consider the fact so evident that there is no need for further statement. He's a great man for that, isn't he? I'm not going to tell you, but I'm just telling you. Though how much it is our interest and also of yours and of the rest of the Christian sovereigns, especially those nearest at hand, to repress such a great thirst and desire for domination, we leave to your judgment. For the French are so on the watch to increase their power by any villainy and more and more so from day to day, that they may annihilate all neighbouring sovereigns to their own advantage. And unless this insatiable covetedness be combated, it is vastly to be feared that much mischief will result to the whole Christian commonwealth, unquote. So quite prescient words from Henry there. Yeah. He also goes on to give examples of French deviousness against Brittany, Flanders and Savoy. And then he asks Ludovico to support him, Ferdinand and Isabella and Maximilian in fighting against the French. Effectively saying, you can't say you haven't been warned. <laughs> and what did Ludovico do? He showed the French Henry's letter. Why would he have done such an underhanded thing? Or several reasons. Because First and foremost, he's an awful person. <laughs> he's, Lu he's Ludovico's fault. So. <laughs> yeah. Also, he was showing the French that they were not his only option. Yeah, other monarchs had written their names on his dance card. But he was also showing French that I've chosen to have the last waltz with you. <laughs> so he wanted to have the French protection against Naples in case they should try anything. But also, we're in 1492. Lang Gian Galeazzo Sforza, Ludovico's nephew, is officially the Duke of Milan. I mean, it's easy to forget that Ludovico doesn't actually have a position here. No, no, he doesn't at all. <laughs> he was keeping young Gian Galeazzo topped up with wine and girls so that he wouldn't interfere in the running of Milan. <laughs> right. Ludovico thought that France would be able to help him to get the duchy for himself. I don't know why he felt he needed the French, though, since he later sorted out that little problem of Gian Galeazzo without the French's assistance when he died in mysterious circumstances. Right. Maybe, I was about to say, maybe he has some, what is that, hesitancy towards killing a family member? Well, I can't believe the option hasn't occurred to him at this point. <laughs> it's it's a sort of default way in Renaissance Italy. Yeah. Yeah, I'll kill him. Oh, no, actually, apparently there is another way. Yeah. Reservations, that's the word. Mm. Ludovico sent his ambassadors to France, quote, You will offer the king, our state, and all its resources, its men-at-arms, and the person of our most illustrious uncle himself, unquote. So that's Ludovico pretending the letter had come from Gian Galeazzo. 
it may be that this was just the usual diplomatic politeness, you know, sort of trope, sort of formula, that if you're collaborating with someone, you just say, oh, yes, I'll give you everything. But yeah. Charles decided, no, nah, you'll give us everything. <laughs> you'll give us everything. You said so. It is now mine. Yeah, I've got it written down. If you didn't, didn't want to do it, don't write it down. It seems that at this time, Ludovico is ensuring the goodwill of France and nothing more. Because if he could say to Naples, watch it, I've got the might of France behind me, that should be enough mm. to stop them getting ideas. It shouldn't be necessary to, for France actually to come into <laughs> Italy. But things have got ahead of Ludovico. Yeah, Charles. Yes. <laughs> I'm coming. I don't care what you say now. I am on my way. Yes, for someone so smarmy and devious, we've come across several occasions when Ludovico was completely swamped by by events. He's not yeah. a, he's not a Ferdinand. He doesn't play things two steps ahead. No. He reacts to events and thinks he's being clever and then nah, nah. Yeah. Yeah. In July 1493, the resident Italian ambassador in France suddenly leapt on a horse and hightailed it back to Milan in just seven days. I think, poor horse. Ludovico wasn't in Milan, so he had to hunt him out. And the reason for this haste was that Charles had secured arrangements with both Ferdinand and Henry and was on the cusp of sorting out something similar with Maximilian. After that, he was coming for Naples. And what was that you said, Ludovico, about your state and all its resources and its men-at-arms? Mm. Yes, please. Yes, please. Now. Now. <laughs> now. So although it's always said that Ludovico called the French in, the French were coming anyway, really. There was nothing, no way of stopping Charles. Mm. He had his heart set on it. And Ludovico was saying, you don't have to come. Just say you'll come. Mm. And Charles said, no, I'm coming. What Ludovico had to decide now was whether to support them, the French. And it wasn't a simple decision. He could accept the French and the hope that they would protect him from the Neapolitans. But if he did that, wouldn't Louis of Orléans claim Milan? He had more right to it than the Sforzas. Even if the French were to help him, how long would it take for them to get there? I mean, Naples could attack before they arrived. And contemporaries said of Ludovico, quote, he turned a lion loose in his house to catch a mouse, unquote. And he dug himself in even deeper. When threatened by Naples, he turned to Naples' enemy, France. But now he wanted France to do his bidding and not to turf him out in favour of Louis of Orléans. So he turned to France's enemy. Because <laughs> in theory... Oh my goodness! <laughs> it's cane toads and rabbits and things, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> In theory, Milan was a fief of the Holy Roman Empire, so his thinking was that if he could get Maximilian to invest him with the dukedom, the French wouldn't dare take it off him. And you wonder where it will end. Who will we side with to make Maximilian do his bidding? <laughs> the Venetians, probably, I suppose. Oh, goodness. Well, he doesn't have to do that. All he has to do is offer Maximilian 100,000 ducats, which Maximilian liked. Yeah, because he has no money. And the hand of his niece, Bianca Maria, whom he didn't like so much. But she oh. did have a dowry of 300,000 ducats. Holy cow. And she was going to end up a pauper. Yeah. I don't know if she does, but that's what I'm thinking. 
She does, because she, I remember she writes to uh, Maximilian saying, you know, my court and I, we haven't, we actually haven't got any food. Yeah. Mm. Gosh. Everybody thinks, oh, I'd rather be a noble in this time, so I'm not a peasant. So far, it seems like most of the noble women we've covered aren't doing well. No, no. No, it's really not. I've got a good time to be a woman. Well, in this way, Ludovico believed that he could bring in the French to tackle Naples while using Maximilian to ensure that the French didn't overstay their welcome and try and take over Milan. But he he told Charles VIII that his dealings with Maximilian were purely to cement an alliance between France and the Holy Roman Empire. Because, you know, he's a a selfless man, is Ludovico. Mm -hmm. I don't do anything for myself. I'm doing it all for you and Maximilian. Charles pretended to go along with this reasoning, although he wasn't fooled for a minute. Ludovico and Charles didn't trust each other right from the get-go. They're meant, to, they're meant to be collaborating, but... Ludovico still wasn't sure whether to encourage the French into Italy or not. He wasn't an idiot. He could see the potential consequences. And his subjects had made it quite clear that he didn't like the idea. And he was alienating himself from his neighbours, which was making his, his situation even more dangerous. And by the 3rd of August, 1493, he had made up his mind and had sent an envoy to France to tell Charles. The envoy was given instructions only to talk to Charles when he was out hawking, because Ludovico's idea was that the king would only have around him those who were encouraging him to take the throne of Naples, because I think everyone else had given up on him. And it wasn't clear, though, it's possible these instructions came from Charles because he didn't want anyone to try and talk him out of the scheme. Maybe he knew what he was like and thought, I just don't, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. Charles then told the envoy to go and talk to some of his courtiers, and interestingly, it was only the ones who were encouraging him with the venture that he told them to talk to. He didn't tell them to talk to the others. It's as if Charles is doing this all behind the backs of most of his court, as if he's going to spring on them. Oh, by the way, we're going to Italy. Like a surprise party or something. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, so he knows nobody wants to go. He knows. They keep telling him, please, this is ridiculous. Back in Italy, the other states Ludovico had been banking on, Florence and Venice, had told them it would be impractical to attack Naples. So Ludovico was worried. Had he backed the wrong horse? His former allies were pulling out and he he didn't know if France was going to help him. He was sort of on his own. And it turned out that back in France, Charles was panicking because he didn't know Ludovico's intentions. They were like, like two young people who fancy each other but don't believe the other one has even noticed them you like me don't you <laughs> you do it, it it took more of a sinister turn when charles assured the envoy that he intended to invade naples with or without ludovico's help but if it were without his help charles would definitely be favoring louis of orleans as duke of milan so ludovico should watch it so now ludovico's painted himself into a corner He has to go with the French. He knows precisely what will happen if he doesn't, although he doesn't know what will happen if he does. Charles had already muzzled England, Spain and the Holy Roman Empire with gifts of land or money. Muzzled. (laughs) (laughs) They are dogs with a bone. Just muzzle them. They'll be fine. Yes, I think actually Maximilian probably do with a muzzle. (laughs) That probably seems very appropriate. 
and a leash. He now reckoned the Pope and Venice could be made to come over to his side. And as for Florence, either it should side with him or it must be constrained. I mean, luckily for Charles, this proved not to be necessary since soon, soon after he entered Italy and the Medici had been overthrown, Savonarola was ruling Florence. And he thought that Charles was the sword of God. Why? <laughs> Why? I think it was written. It was written. And when it's written, it's got to be true. It's true. <laughs> Charles was normally rather lacklustre when talking about affairs of state, so the Ludovico's envoy was rather surprised to find him so buoyant and enthusiastic when he was talking about the invasion, sort of like a switch had been thrown. Suddenly he was... Manic. Leaping about, saying, yeah, we must do this. He was going to free Naples from the tyrant and then use it as the springboard to attack the infidel. Yeah, what larks? <sighs> Ludovico, realising he's in a bit of a tricky situation now, then set about bribing anyone he could in the French court so as to give himself some influence. So some of those who had been advising the king not to invade had suddenly had a change of heart. And Ludovico was denying even to his brother Ascanio that he was the instigator of the venture. Quote, It is not true that I am the instigator of this affair. The most Christian king took the initiative himself, as is proved by the demands he addressed to the late Pope for the investiture and by his autograph letters to myself, unquote. So it's still, it's quite hard to work out whether... Determine. It's yeah. chick chicken and the egg, really, isn't it? Yeah. But I don't know which is whether Charles or Ludovico, which is the chicken and which is the egg. Because it was most likely not written down when it was first broached. Mm. In many ways, it was very unfortunate for Charles that Innocent VIII died. Because Innocent, pro-Charles. <laughs> unfortunate for Innocent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alexander VI, anti-Charles. Or at least some of the time. So that was bad timing. By this time, King Ferrante had left Naples and Alfonso, his son, had taken over. And Ludovico claimed that he was well disposed towards Alfonso, which makes you wonder why he's carrying on with this French enterprise, except that he's in too deep to get out. Mm. And he again wrote to Ascanio, quote, I want to humble that overweening pride of his, lest after his father's fashion he should forget that he ought to treat other Italian potentates, including ourselves, not as inferior but as equals. To achieve this, we must keep his hands too busy at home to go grasping other people's possessions, and so the French must come to Italy, unquote. So it's changed a bit. Rather than Ludovico being afraid that Naples will overrun Milan, and then it might be quite understandable why he'd want the aid of the French, he now wants to show that Alfonso that he's a big man too. But... And that's a rather more petty reason for wanting to bring in the French... He seems to have, maybe because he's a usurper, and he's not actually How the Duke. How can Naples overrun Milan? Milan, there's one, two, three, four, five, six countries in between them. <laughs> or city-states. Mm. Yeah, but most of the ones in between are uh, papal states that are um, pro-Naples, pro so uh, you can get through them quite easily. But then they still have to go through Medina. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, gosh, this is confusing. Yes, it is. Mind you, I still find I find the Italian one easier to understand than the Breton one. Oh. Ludovico had a contingency plan. 
Quote, but to ensure that the results of their coming, the French, do not go beyond our needs and end in the utter ruin of the King of Naples, I have arranged that which you know of, namely that the King of the Romans should also cross the Alps. Such a counterpoise will prevent the French from becoming more powerful than they are already. The prince, Maximilian, is no more anxious than we are to see the French grow stronger. He is connected to us by marriage, and he is bent on recovering the supremacy of Italy, which belongs of right to the empire. Thus, it will be easy to keep the French progress within bounds, unquote. And I think there's only one word for that. Naive. Oh my goodness. It really is the toads, then mm. the cats, then rabbits, then etc., etc., etc. Yeah. I'll bring in this to take care of this. Yep. Oh, they've gotten out of control. Now I need to go for this person. Yep. Jeez. And then you panic and think, oh, God, well, I don't really want to be on either of their sides. Yes, we need to get rid of both of them. <laughs> quick, somebody contact the Russians. <laughs> yes, quick, form a league. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. The Ottomans, the Ottomans, they're handy. <laughs> Where's the king of Denmark when you need him? <laughs> <laughs> He's getting shipped. <laughs> Charles needed the Pope. Only he could verify the investiture, which was essential for Charles' claim on Naples. That's all Charles needs the Pope for. If the Pope says yes, then Charles can happily go on his way. But the Pope is now Alexander VI, a Spanish Pope and a friend of Ferdinand. Why would he choose Charles over Ferdinand? And then the French heard that Alexander had sided with, the king, with king Ferranti of Naples. But Charles and those encouraging him were so enthused by their plan that they'd become blinkered to any potential problems. Charles had been told that prophecies foretold his taking of Naples, and he preferred to believe them than boring old evidence. And that was why anyone who had a contrary view was shouted down, and that included his sister. Meanwhile, Ludovico and Ascanio were trying to talk the Pope round, mainly by pointing out all the advantages of the French coming. The Papal States would no longer be under the subjection of Naples. If the Pope Milan and the French acted together, they could be invincible. Also, Alexander could use the French to humble the Orsini family and give all the Orsini lands to his son, emphasising that this would involve no cost whatsoever to the Pope. And usually that clinches it, that no cost and everything will go to Cesare and Juan and the other one, uh. <laughs> little Joffrey. On the other hand, if the Pope were to side with Naples, Milan and the French couldn't make any promises about his safety. Not a threat, just a warning. And you would think that the Pope would jump at this offer, especially the bit about giving land, his sons lots of land. But he decided to hand the investiture to Ferranti's son, Alfonso. Why? Not only that, but the Pope issued a bull telling Charles to behave himself. How dare he attack a Christian prince, Alfonso? They should all be ganging together to fight off the infidel. What was Charles doing, pushing Naples into the arms of the infidel? As for Florence, the French ambassadors went so far as to threaten Piero de' Medici that they would instigate an uprising in the city and have him overthrown if he didn't toe the line. Wow. And we came across the Florentine Council in Machiavelli's episode, mm -hmm. and they just drove us mad. We just wanted to shout Absolutely. at them, just make a decision. <laughs> and stick with it. 
And pay for it. Yes. But in this case, you can see why they're dithering. They bought at the Papal yeah. States, which had just sided with Naples. If Florence decided to side with France, it would be like putting up a sign on the border saying, please invade me. Mm. They pleaded with France saying, can't we just support you unofficially? We supported can't you in the past. Can't we just get along? Yes. Can't we just assume that our affections still lie with you without making it public or official and dangerous? No. That wasn't good enough for France. And in June, they nope. expelled the ambassadors and the staff of the Medici Bank. Charles had to look to public opinion at home, too. The first thing he did was to submit documentation about his right to the Crown of Naples to the Commission of the Parliament of Paris. And they said that Charles categorically and indisputably did have the right to the throne of Naples, which is what they were meant to say. So Charles made sure that everybody knew this. And in January 1494, it was decided to announce to the states of Italy that war was happening. In March, Charles moved his court to Lyon to be closer to Italy, and preparations were made to get this war started. He had the strongest army in Europe. And what he didn't have was enough money, or as I said, tents, which is a fairly basic thing. Tents, you would have thought, but there we yeah. are. <laughs> but Charles wasn't interested in the money part of it. That was for someone else to worry about. Right, he just wants chivalry and... I want to look amazing. Mm-hmm. In chivalric romances, knights didn't have money worries. Mm. He was, yeah, he was interested in shiny uniforms and weapons and glory. Mm. But sadly, you have to pay the men in the shiny uniforms. And while the military leaders were desperately trying to amass enough money to pay the troops, Charles was squandering it on triumphal processions, jousts and ceremonies. Oh, my goodness. And the ladies... His storybook. He's trying to live a storybook life. Yeah, you've got him and you've got Maximilian doing exactly the same thing. Actually writing the storybook. Yeah. It's made up storybook of his life where he's the white king. Yeah. There's a lot of self-delusionment. And then um, Ludovico thinking, it's all right. I, I can, I've, got, I've got this. I can handle this. No, you can't. That's insane. And the fact that people let them can, well, I understand they had so much power, but at the same time, these people are not doing good things. No, they're all bringing <sighs> their, they're all incredibly unpopular at home and bringing down their countries. Desperate measures to put it, were put in place to get the money, the arrears of taxes were demanded, court salaries reduced. There was talk of taxing the clergy and they were the loans from the Italian banks but this brought, out, brought in a pitiful amount compared to the expenditure. Many people thought this lack of money might be a good thing. They didn't dare go against the king publicly, but they hoped the adventure would just fizzle out when the king realised there'd be no money to continue. Even the Admiral of the fleet was trying to think of ways to scupper the whole thing. <sighs> there were so many things against the project. They would have to be there over winter. The policy was unpopular with the people, especially now it's costing them money. There were risks at going so far from home, not to mention, as we say, problems with supply lines. You couldn't trust the Italian statesmen, they were told, which was also true. <laughs> and more to the point, you couldn't trust Ludovico Sforza. Or would he change sides if it benefited him? They may have thought the Alfonso of Naples would be in no position to fight back. 
But now it was Alfonso the Pope and Florence. It was quite a different kettle of fish. Not only was that a much stronger force, but it covered a big chunk of the Italian peninsula. Because as you say, they've got a lot of places to get through before they can get to Naples. And if yeah. they're turning against the French, they're going to have to cross a lot of hostile territory. Everyone except Charles and a few of his cronies could see that this was going to be a hugely expensive disaster. It was going to bankrupt and humiliate the country. When even the military leaders are trying to derail the enterprise, surely it's time to pull the plug. Yeah. You kind of have to have the confidence of the leaders in order to be successful. No. Charles was obsessed with the idea. Jeez. Even if it seemed as if it might be possible to turn Charles, the arrival of two people made his resolve even greater. Galeazzo di San Severino was a Milanese ambassador and the favourite of Ludovico. He's also the man who arrived at the head of the Milanese army in 1488 when Caterina Sforza had locked herself up in the fortress, telling the Orsi right. brothers to do what they wanted with her children because she could make more. He was the one that saved the day. The other man was Giuliano della de Rovere, later to become Pope Julius II. Yeah. Della Rovere reminded Charles how he had weakened his borders, Charles's borders, to get the invasion going, because he'd given away Sedan and Roussillon to Ferdinand and Burgundy to Maximilian. I can't believe he did that. Mm. Like here. You can, you can have one of the richest duchies in my country. Here, have Burgundy. Yeah. I just want to go do my thing in Italy. Jeez. Yes. They really, he really goes backwards. Sorry, I, I'm not happy with that. Yeah, yeah. Not only is the country impoverished, but it's lost a lot of land. Oh. I mean, yes, it's got Brittany. But, hmm. Brittany wasn't as wealthy as Burgundy. Well, no. Burgundy was skint. The court was rich, but the country was skint because country they had was, yeah. Martin Schwartz and his type wandering around that yes. place. Yeah. Well, Deliver Rivera said, did he want to have ceded all that land for nothing? He told Charles that even if he were short of cash now, all of Italy would clamber over each other to supply him. Italy was just crying out for him to cross the Alps. No, they weren't. But think how furious Pope Alexander would be. Did, did I say that aloud? No, forget that one. It's not. No, it's yeah, nothing. Sh- nothing sh- to do with no. Sh- no, it's <laughs> definitely no. not the reason. No, no, Cesare is not in consideration here. <laughs> but he was pushing at an open door because that was exactly what Charles wanted to hear. Oh my goodness! Apart from the annoying the Pope bit. <sighs> By June, the preparations were complete. Louis of Orleans set off to Genoa in command of the fleet. Gilbert de Montpensier was made Captain General of the Army. The more of him when we get to Naples. The Duke of Bourbon, Pierre de Beaujeu, Charles' brother-in-law, was left in charge of France while Charles was away. And on the 3rd of, 3rd of September, Charles took his first steps on Italian soil. So next week, we will find out what happened once Charles started his march towards Naples. Is it going to be the financial disaster that everyone is predicting? It must be because I know the answer. <laughs> we keep hearing that the man's the man's an idiot. That he yes. can't, he can't make decisions. So, you know, it's it just it's gonna be horrendous. 
Some of these are very frustrating. This is almost, almost as frustrating as Florence. <laughs> Not quite as frustrating, but almost. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Least of all the people who are starting out on these things. Yes, very true. I'm not quite sure what, whether they've got a proper plan, a day by day. Right, this day we've got to do this. We've got to have succeeded there. Otherwise, we're not going to manage there. I don't know if there's any of that or whether it's just sort of wave your sword about, and shout charge and look chivalrous. That's how it's coming across, that it's this very little planning has taken place. It sounds like plenty of planning has been taking place. It's just in the realm of not reality. Yes. Yes, it's all a lovely dream. He's got his shiny, yeah. shiny armor. Maybe it sort of make, covers up quite a lot of his... Shiny armor covers everything. Yes, his, <laughs> his physical defects and... Mental defects. Yes. <laughs> I'm hoping he can turn this around. Well, we will find out next week. Next week. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>